So to completely contrast the previous crap episode, here's a really good episode, at least in my opinion. Uh, I usually list this in the, the VHS collection I've talked about a few times. Uh, this also establishes a weirdly large number of things. This is when Worf gets his ponytail look, which, if you're probably thinking, wait, what do you mean? Well, if you've ever seen him just on D-Space 9, this is when that started. Yeah, mid-season 6. Speaking of things that are established in mid-season 6, this is when they established that while you're cloaked, you don't have shields up. And this is when they established that the Romulans use singularity engines, which is something that makes sense in hindsight, uh, given the defector, and also will come up in the future as well. Just some, just some cool little stuff. Gabriella Beaumont, who I've praised several times for her ability to pull uh, character pieces together, does the directing for this episode. And it was put together, actually quite a few people worked on this. Mr. Shankar and uh, Renee Echeverria worked on this script. But you can kind of tell that it, it's, it's an episode that probably shouldn't be as good as it is, that is carried by the nature by which it's executed and the acting on, on behalf of, you know, Marina Sirtis, who is allowed to act, <laughs> to put it as simplistically as I can. Uh, originally, they were actually going to bring Joanna Linville back, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. Uh, she was the woman who played the Romulan commander all the way back in the Enterprise incident, way back in TOS. That didn't, felt, that didn't happen. So instead, they decided to bring back the woman who plays Terrace, who I don't remember her name. Now, this is funny. Because she played Terrace in a previous episode of TNG. Carol, Carolyn Seymour, that's her name. But for some reason they decided to, even though she looks the same and in many ways acts the same, they decided to go ahead and give her a different name, Toreth. I've been trying, I actually spent a little time trying to figure out why they didn't just call her Terrace. And near as I can tell, the only thing I could come up with have to be rights issues, you know, having to pay the original thing. Because it, I like to think that this basically is Terrace, since it makes sense, given the context. But whatever, let's move on. So we have a great hook, in contrast to the previous episode. Troy wakes up. Now, we're paying attention, so we see immediately she's in a Romulan outfit on her Romulan ship. The hook takes a little while, and the off chance you have a darker television or don't really know what's going on, because then she sees her magic. Oh my gosh! Da-na-na-na. And it actually works, because why the heck is Troy a Romulan, right? This then leads to a very quick and dirty explanation of things. This is probably the weakest part of the episode, by the way. The overall plot doesn't line up as well as it probably should. There's just too many holes here and there in the background of how events manage to get from point A to point B. As usual, I'm willing to ignore that in, in, if it does something good with it, the cloud effect, right? And that's what this does uh, much. You'll notice, however, Troy comes off initially as Troy. <laughs> what I mean by that is if you close your eyes and listen to how she's acting during the first chunk when she first goes to the bridge. Literally, close your eyes, and you can just picture her standing there in her, you know, uniform that she actually got after Chains of Command, and, you know, no makeup, and she's just being Troy on the bridge of a Romulan ship. Everything about her tonality and her speech patterns and everything is just Troy. You can tell she's completely off balance and doesn't know how to act. It's not until Torith actually pushes her that she starts to realize the nature of the situation and the fact that she has to push back. We also see just how much fear the Tal Shiar really do engender here amongst the Romulan populace. Now this is something that's been implied many times, but here we see it full frontal. We see people on a military ship who are probably loyal to each other, and we see that towards the end of the episode, who, who quail and quake 
from one person who has no personal backing. You know, there's no bodyguards there. There's no nothing. Because of the fact that they happen to be with the Tal Shiar. The implication being obvious. If they do anything here, they would probably end up killing the Tal Shiar agent. Or defeating them, or beating them up, or tossing them into space, or whatever you feel like dealing with it. <clears throat> but at some point or another, they're going to have to go home. And that's when they're going to find out what happened. And that's when they're going to be screwed. Even if they come back and it's like, oh, there's no Tal Shiar urgent. Oh, what happened? Oh, there was an accident. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not going to fly. <laughs> so you can see how, for lack of a better way to put it, political fear keeps personal power in check, if that makes any sense. This also leads to a, a comment that I have to mention. I really hate the Romulan outfits. So, segue. I don't like the big shoulder pads in these things. In fact, for a while, I have tried to find a good suit, you know, for, the, for these uh, ruminations and for the streams, that I can wear that just doesn't have the shoulder pads. Number one, I don't need them. My shoulders are very broad to begin with. But number two, I think it looks awful. Just my opinion. I've never liked that look. I put up with it because I don't have an opportunity. In fact, I've, I've even looked into just having the things sewn out, right? But apparently that's actually really involved, and I certainly couldn't do it myself. And the only professional uh, seamstress I know, she's super busy and I don't want to bother her. So I just live with it. Then you see the Romulan outfits. And those things, like, my God, they stick out to, like, here. Or, like, like here-ish, trying to get it, get it in here. Like, they're huge! And there's just this straight square, and they, God, they look terrible. I absolutely hate those shoulder pads in the Romulan outfits. It's, I can't be the only one. They do a decent job with some of the military outfits, like the one they have on Troy and the one they have on Torith, but when the dude comes over, he's just got... Boah, you could tell they just put him in whatever outfit they had available because they didn't want a minute. Although, this has been a problem in the past, too. Anyway, sorry, segue over. So, we see him, and he's here to deliver the message that, yes, we need to go... We need to get this. This is the other side of the you know, crossing the border thing. You'll notice the Cold War parallels continue, by the way. Look at how much time and effort and work and sacrifice is done just to get three people across the border successfully. Yikes. But uh, what I like most is there's this great scene where he says, I have to meet you, Picard. There's a message, something about cowboy diplomacy and um, getting something going forward. So it's nice, A, to see continuity. For those of you who've been watching my DS9 stuff, you may have noticed that I've dubbed Season 6 of Deep Space Nine the recurring season, where elements keep coming back, and there's a lot of strong continuity between episodes, both in the previous show and just in Season 6 itself. TNG doesn't do that. TNG has what I usually call background continuity. Usually just elements or tiny little tidbits that, that, that do help establish the world, but for the most part don't really connect to each other. So it's nice to see the occasional tidbit, the, the, the dipping the finger into the water kind of a thing here with continuity, because this is a direct consequence of unification. This will never be followed through on, and in fact one of the things that bothers me about this episode is the next official thing that happens is Nemesis where a coup is established by a human who's leading the Remans in order to take control of the military, in order to usurp the Senate, in order to declare war on the Federation. Right. 
That I mean, we could argue that to make sense, but it doesn't really follow through logically on the the path the Romulans have been on in general. We also never see Sela again, so that's nice. And we never hear of any of these events again, so that's nice. This is a big step that will never be referenced ever again. You can see why I dislike it when recurring elements don't happen. Especially when they're big elements, like this one. Come on, this isn't a minor thing. This is three high-ranking individuals of the Romulan government crossing the border to the Federation. This is huge. And we'll never even reference this again. You see why this bugs me? Anyways, that being said, in the realm of the headcanon land, it's a beautiful, glorious place. Anyways, um... I've always liked to think that this was one of the really big steps that helped push for what eventually happens in Star Trek Online with regards to the Romulan Republic. Just just my own take on that. <clears throat> so, he talks to, uh, to Picard, and Picard's like, okay, I get your message. I need to know some something about the nature of the messenger. Now, what's interesting is the guy pauses for a second and says, okay. And he just starts talking about himself. Like, really openly, like as if he was opening up to a, uh, to a confessional or to a psychiatrist or to a family member or something. Now, that's good because that's pretty much what convinces Picard. His straightforward honesty of why he did what he did. And I love the way he presents it. Clarity of purpose. The Romulans are very moral people. They do what they do because it is right. Now, anybody with a brain can see the danger of that. But you can also see the appeal of it as well, the certainty of it, the nature of understanding that comes with it. In fact, if not for the fact that the Romulans um, are their own worst enemy, there's a pretty good chance the Romulans would be the dominant power in the two quadrants. No, seriously, I've actually posited this theory before that, I don't know how to praise this, that it is natural that it is logical for one power to become dominant within known space that it exists within. See the Dominion for a good example of this. And that that's just a natural byproduct because if you spend enough time, eventually one power is going to get big enough to absorb or crush the other powers and then reach a point where it is now dominant. It is, in fact, the nature of... And I know this is going to sound like a humans are special thing, but it's the nature of the Federation that interrupts that. Because the Federation doesn't seek to dominate like that. If they had, they would. No, I'm sorry. If the Federation was a conquering power, like the Dominion, which fully pushed its time and effort into that, yeah, I think the Federation would actually rule the Quadrants. Cardassians, Klingons, Romulans, they would all be under heel or gone. Now, the Romulans do have that drive, but they're completely internecine. They spend so much time and effort and resources and lives on plots and scheming within the Empire that that's the Romulan Star Empire's biggest flaw. They never expand because they kind of can't, right? So you can kind of see how there's this weird... And, of course, the Klingons, I'm not going to... We've talked about the Klingons a lot. That there's this weird balance point between the three big, you know, the, the three major powers in the quadrants, which kind of uniquely makes it so that none of them really dominates the other. It's not until the formation of the Galactic Alliance, in STO, that this is finally usurped, and even then it only happened because it was necessary for survival. So, just food for thought. Anyway, sorry, moving on. This leads to Troy hitting Toreth pretty hard at the dinner scene. Can I, I just want to give another bit of praise for Marina Sirtis. See, here's the thing. 
she basically does three separate roles within this episode. Troy, towards the beginning and at the very end. Trying to act tough towards the beginning. You know, like in the middle-ish part. And then being the tall Shi'ar agent, which is what she does towards the end. Now, I want to explain what I mean by that a little bit. I've discovered over the years of working as a director, especially when it comes to voice acting, that if you tell someone to act evil, there's like a certain tone they use. If you tell them to act strong, there's a certain tone they use. And you'll notice that's exactly what she does. She lowers her voice in order to talk like this. And this is how she comes across as strong. I don't know where the accent's coming from, but you get the idea, right? She does this after she stops abandoning her usual tone of Troy. It is only when she becomes comfortable with the role that she actually comes across as strong, and she actually starts acting like the tall Shi'ar agent who's completely in control. And, and instead of sounding like she's speaking down to someone, instead she comes across as cold, almost chilling in the way she presents it. And every time she raises her voice, she does so with with intent. I will have you ejected from this ship, Subcommander. Is that clear? <laughs> and the way she does that, there's no denying... Like, I'm not actually doing it like she does, because, like I said, I'm not a good actor. And also, well, to be perfectly fr frank, I don't want to go full volume because my microphone is right there. But you get the idea. <sighs> so she does a really good job. Uh, she pushes Torath. You believe it'd be better without the tall Shi'ar? What she's asking is basically, are you a traitor? And what she's asking could be perceived as, as, as a loyalty quiz on, on any other Romulan ship. It's interesting how much Toreth is willing to bite back on this one. In fact, what I find most amusing is Toreth strikes me as someone who probably would be a dissident sympathizer under the right circumstances. As is, she's probably going to get executed for this whole thing, so that's nice. Sure glad it was worth it, right? They even say in the denouement, this was totally worth it. So I'm never going to reference it again. But this, of course, leads to the scene where they're interacting with the freighter. One of the things I like about this episode is they leave a lot of things unspoken. They don't need to because we get the points. We get the inferences. We understand where things are going and why. Okay, that's cool. I like that. The one thing that makes me wonder is, what do you think the freighter was going to do with the cargo since they weren't going to fulfill their end of the bargain? They could have just ejected into space and kept the money. Or they could have tried to sell it off to highest bidder, or maybe tried to open it up and be like, aha, it's Romulans, we should totally sell it back. You know, there's all sorts of things they could have done to be untrustworthy. But all of them mean they had to die. Now, this is actually interesting, because I completely agree with Nevek on this one. That was the only cause, of, this is the only way forward. The, they could have done a little bit better. Sever communications. I recognize that man. He's a Federation agent. Should we fire? Hmm. We don't want to give our hand away too easily. Perhaps we should delay for a period of time before we decide to do so. You know, rather than just opening fire. But on the other hand, it did accomplish the objective, so there's that, I suppose. And it's not like Nevek wasn't willing to sacrifice himself for the cause as well, so... Shrug. So this... <laughs> this is a great bit, because Toreth is like, how freaking dare you give the order to fire on my bridge, on my ship? This is not yours to command, how dare you? But Troy, by this point, this is when she starts to shift into really having a handle on how, how to do the role. This is funny, because it's always the weirdest thing to play an actor, excuse me, to be an actor playing an actor playing a role. It's trickier than it sounds, trust me. 
but she does a good thing. She just comes right down on Toroth. This is how this is going, and this is how this is. Cloak the ship. We need to deal with this right now. Maintain sensor sweep. <sighs> Inform me of anything that happens. I'll be in my room. Dun, 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 dun. Now, <laughs> there's a nice little aside where Picard is talking to the dude and is like, why didn't you volunteer this information? I, sorry, it's a bad habit. The, the, in Romulans, you don't volunteer information. Really? Really? Okay. That's interesting, because in the Federation, you're supposed to volunteer information pretty much constantly. Like, that's kind of how their society works. Challenge and question. Romulan society is based on adherence and obedience, so it makes sense that they would go the opposite. I find myself wondering how well they actually function, structurally speaking, given that mentality, given that overall approach. Unfortunately, you might wonder why I'm talking about the Romulans so much. It's because we don't really have a lot of Romulan-centric episodes in the entire franchise. We have, like, one-off episodes, and each of these is just a little window into Romulan society and Romulan culture. We know everything about the Klingons and the Cardassians and the Bajorans and the Federation. The heck are the Romulans, you know? Anyways, I'm getting off topic. <clears throat> so this leads to the Enterprise showing up. And Navek is like, um, okay, this is this is dangerous. You know, this is dangerous. We're not sure what to do. And he starts to go for the safe side of things, which I find hysterical, given how much he's been pushing this entire time. Now, I need to build up to a point here really quick. But I do want to quote something from Torah. Contrary to the propaganda your superiors would have us believe, Starfleet is neither weak nor foolish. I actually like that. Because she's right. No, she is, as as the Dominion War will show. <laughs> when Starfleet is pushed into a corner and actually starts fighting, yeah, they, they can accomplish quite a bit. The only reason they were losing the Dominion War is because it was the frickin' Dominion. It's hard to overcome those advantages. Anyways, Navek this entire time has been, you will do this or you will be executed. They will find you out and they will kill you. You must do this. She, he basically strong-arms Troy the entire time. This leads to my favorite scene in the entire episode, where she says, all right, you're going to figure out a way to, to have the Enterprise track us, and you're going to do it now, or I am going to go ahead, and she just starts yelling at him. Again, I'm not going to raise my own voice to emulate, but you, you know the scene. I will go up to Torth, and I will oust you as a traitor, and I will have you executed, Subcommander. Is that clear? The way she says that is wonderful. And it gets across the point that she's starting to not only really feel the vibe here, but she's fully getting in character. You could also say this is the stress of the moment pushing on Troy, but if I could be so bold, I would say that there's a reason Troy has three pips on her collar. Or, wait, she doesn't yet, does she? Where she's going to have three pips on her collar, sorry. That she's on the command track is what I'm going down. That this is something that's... Has that episode already happened? I actually don't remember. I don't think it has. Anyways, <clears throat> point being, that you get an idea that there's a reason that Troy is someone who could qualify as command material, because she is willing to take command under the circumstance where she arguably is the one with the weakest hand, to extend a poker metaphor in a weird way. So, this leads to cuts back and forth between the two bridges. Now, this actually works really well. 
because there's a lot of cutout time that would, in a normal episode, be spent on, Sir, I'm detecting such a... Instead, it just cuts to them having the revelation and knowing what to do with it. This cuts out a lot of filler. A lot of, again, stuff that would be in a normal episode, where they actually show most of the stuff on camera. Instead, we just cut straight to them having the result. This is one of the things I mentioned earlier, and helps the pace of the episode tremendously. While this isn't a traditional Lower Decks episode, this still functions in many ways the same way as a Lower Decks episode, because it's all about changing perspective on a normal episode, on a normal storytelling. Um, and so the cut back, the cuts back, the cuts back and forth. I can talk. Are awesome. Now there's another thing that's really cool. So the re, the the Romulan bridge was supposed to be completely different. It was supposed to be like in the front of the ship, so it was supposed to be like angled down, and the commander was supposed to be standing in the very back. Basically, there's the door right behind her. So she, so you know she's there's no one behind her, right? And then the the pilot was up there, and there's there's a whole thing. It sounded really cool. Now, I, I mentioned that. That was designed by Shankar, I believe. Let me double-check that really quick. Yep, Shankar. I was right. Um, and he, he described the entire thing, and he wanted to build a whole set for it. That's probably why they didn't do it. But based on his description, it sounds very, very much like he's describing the Riemann Bridge on the Scimitar over a Nemesis. I don't know, but I wonder if they actually took the ideas of that and implemented them uh, in into Nemesis. But anyways, so the Dideradex is established as a legitimate threat to the Enterprise, and of course it is. It's an established threat. And I wanted to talk about this very briefly. I constantly am irritated by the threat of the weak, and part of the reason why is here's something we've never met before. It's stronger than us. Okay, we, we, we defeat it. Never comes back. As has been pointed out before, from a simple world-building perspective, this actually doesn't make much sense. And from a construction of television perspective, it makes even less sense, in my opinion, because it means the threat of the week is cheap. This is the a threat because it's an episode, which not only means automatically you know they're going to defeat it, but it means it will never mean anything ever again. By contrast, the Dideradex, while functionally a threat of the week, is nevertheless an established threat of the week. We know how big and strong Romulan warbirds are. That's been established since all the way back in Season 1. So we see this ship, and we already know it's deadly. They don't need to say it's dangerous. They don't need to say it's a match for the Enterprise, because we know that. And they never do. They never point out the severity of the combat threat that's being presented here. And in fact, most of the actual threat of the week on this episode is actually just to Troy and the mission. And that works a lot better, in my opinion. Anyways. So, <sighs> Troy decides to drive home the idea that if you decide to turn against me, you and your families will all suffer. Because Tal Shiar, again, they have to go home sometime, right? I mean, this isn't like a naval ship out in the middle of nowhere. They have to return to a port which knows who and what they are. And again, if a Tal Shiar agent went missing, there's going to be problems. So you can kind of see why they would be more inclined to go with the threat. It's funny, though, because if you'll notice, the only one who decides to <clears throat> bow to the pressure is Nevek, who is, of course, just playing along. But that's how those kind of things tend to go in general. One person decides, okay, fine, I'll mutiny. And then other people tend to go along with it. Then, of course, she gives a strategy. Now, this is another thing that's actually amazing, because her strategy is actually quite legitimately good. No, seriously. Her strategy is we will go ahead and offer the Federation diplomacy. We'll offer an olive branch. We will talk. 
I will then convince them to lower their shields, which will then allow us to attack them. Now, that probably wouldn't work full tilt, but it's certainly a better plan than the one Torith had, so make of that what you will. Either way, Picard notices immediately, of course he does, and he plays along beautifully, because of course he does. I just wanted to give special praise to that, because they just, you notice Riker too in the background is just like, <laughs> like a very brief double take, like, uh? doesn't say anything though, keeps his tongue, which is good. So, uh, yeah, they go along with things, they figure out pretty much immediately what's happening. For once, for once, a constant transporter lock is actually utilized properly. Do you notice that? There's been plenty of episodes previously, or actually, sorry, technically in the future over on Voyager, where they actually say something like, maintain transporter lock, and then, where is he? I don't know, I can't beam them. Why? Constant lock means exactly what it sounds like. The second you stopped having lock, you should have said something. Here, they maintain a constant lock, and as soon as the shields go down for the ship to leave, which is exactly how that should work. And then, of course, they get the hell out of there because, well, one thing a galaxy does have over to Daredex is its warp speed. So they peace out, but, and it actually works out pretty well for them. The, overall, I don't have much else to add. This is a very enjoyable episode. Great character piece. <sighs> Arguably a good continuity piece, even though it never matters again. I very much enjoyed it, and I look forward to your guys' comments in the future. I will see you guys next time.